This podcast contains content that some listeners may find distressing. It contains depictions of real-life traumatic events, including commentary around significant injuries and death. It is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. Countering terrorism has been at the very core of the Australian Federal Police since the organisation was first established in 1979. But in 2002, an act of terrorism in Bali, right on Australia's doorstep, would prove to be a major turning point. For the first time, Australians understood just how close and how real the prospect of a terrorist attack was. For the AFP, they evolved overnight, forming critical alliances with police jurisdictions around the country, and perhaps most importantly, with the Indonesian National Police. In doing so, they began one of the most significant operations in AFP history. I'm Ray Martin, and coming up, you'll hear first-hand accounts and untold stories from some courageous men and women within the AFP. Men and women involved in this history-defining operation, whether they were assisting the injured, leading the search for answers, or helping the families of the victims. Some of what you're about to hear may be confronting, but these are important stories that do need to be told. They're stories of extraordinary teamwork. These are the stories of Operation Alliance. It's Saturday night in Bali, October 12, 2002. And like every other Saturday night, the main strip of Jalan Legian in the tourist district of Kuta is heaving. The streets and bars are filled with people, many of them Australians. Backpackers, holidaymakers, blokes on end-of-year footy trips, all of them simply out for a good time. But around 11pm local time, everything changed. And I remember the phone the phone ringing in the lab, which was unusual for a Sunday. And then the phone calls just kept going. I was at home and I got a call from the Deputy Commissioner. He called me and said, Anne, we need you in here now. Didn't tell me the what or the why, so I got in my car and drove in and I can still remember that drive thinking, I wonder what it could be that they want me in here this early. I got up on the Sunday morning to multitude of text messages and voice messages, all concerning some of our colleagues that were actually in the Sari Club and had been um, victims of the bombing. Called into the boss's office and basically got told, go home, pack your bag, you're going to Bali. And that was the first I knew of it. So it was quite frantic. I was like, what? What are you talking about? In 2002, the Sari Club in Kuta was one of Bali's best-known hotspots and a popular hangout for tourists. Immediately across the road was another popular spot, Paddy's Irish Bar. On the night of October 12, just after 11pm, a suicide bomber entered a crowded Paddy's Bar and detonated explosives. As people panicked and fled outside, 
a Mitsubishi van packed with more explosives was detonated right outside the Sari Club. Shortly after, a third but smaller blast was reported, this one in an open roadside area outside the US consulate in the Denpasar suburb of Renault. At the time, Frank Morgan was an AFP officer attached to the UN peacekeeping force in East Timor. Frank had been enjoying some time off in Bali with several other AFP colleagues, among them Nicole Haig. On October 12th, they'd all been out to dinner, and while the others wanted to kick on at the Sari Club, Frank thought that he'd call it a night. It had been a long few days playing golf, swimming, doing what, we, what you do on days off, and it just decided I was going to go home early said goodnight to everyone and uh, walked away, walked up the road. I think the hotel was around about maybe 400 metres away from the Sari Club and it was just as I got back to the hotel when uh, you heard the, the explosions, the, the noise of uh, the bombs going off, not knowing that they were, at the time, they were, were bombs and what was happening. Actually, my first impressions was I thought a plane had crashed somewhere because it was just this rumbling and noise that was shaking the building and uh, breaking glass in the, uh, in the hotel. All of a sudden, the lights went out. There was a, a loud boom and, and the lights went out. We could see uh, fire. We thought it was our hotel that we were staying at initially. That's Glenn McEwen who in 2002 was an AFP senior liaison officer working with the Indonesian National Police to investigate people smuggling operations. Glenn was also in Bali on the night of October 12 and one of the first to arrive at the bomb sites. So we were running along Kuta Beach on the roadway there. We made a left turn up Poppy's Lane 2, which leads from Kuta Beach to Jalan Legian. And as we were running towards what was now or is ground zero, I could see from a distance that there was slight structural damage to shops, started with broken windows. The damage was far greater as you move towards Jalan Legian. We arrived at Jalan Legian right in the middle of it. It was ground zero. It came out right at Paddy's Bar. And you can imagine, there, it was just mayhem. Um, there were bodies, there were people, there was fire, there was chaos. You could see a row of taxis and cars because Jalan Legian is one way. At that particular juncture, it's one way. And they didn't escape the blast. You could see, you know, skeletal remains of people in the cars. You could see death and destruction all around you. People who were injured, there were motorbikes there and us and others were helping them onto the motorbikes. That natural instinct to help kicked in with Frank Morgan as well, despite the horrific scenes and chaos starting to unfold. You could see the flames, the, the glow of, of flames and some minor ex explosions still going off. I remember there was glass everywhere on the ground and I went back inside to put a pair of shoes on because I was only wearing uh, thongs at the time. I thought, well, I'll go down and have, a, and have a look and see if I can, can help. I actually didn't get out of the hotel area because in the time that had passed, there were people coming back to the hotel that were all injured, had been cut, bruised, burnt, a lot of burns. 
I stopped in the the forecourt of the hotel and there was a, a young lady, I don't know her name, don't know where she was from, but she was very badly burnt uh, all down her front. Her dress had, had been burnt onto her. And I remember putting her, getting her on the ground and getting people to get blankets and just making them wet just to try and protect her in some way from the burns or do what you can for burns, knowing that this was just the beginning. There were so many people that were walking around injured. Unfortunately, that young lady died. She, she, just, she basically died on me. There's, there's nothing you could do. And someone came and covered her up. At this time, calls had already started coming in to the AFP watch office in Canberra about an incident in Bali. Andrew Colvin was just 11 days into his role as the AFP's National Coordinator of Counterterrorism. I took a call on the Sunday morning, which would have been just after the attack, and it was the watch office in Canberra calling to say, and they literally said, hey, Andrew, we don't know what's just happened in Bali, but we know there's been an explosion and we didn't know who to ring, so we thought you'd be the, a good person. And I've learned so much about how first pieces of information are so rarely accurate. And I said, so what did you think? What do you think happened? They go, well, we're not really sure, but the first reports from the scene is that a gas cylinder has exploded, possibly a Hawker van on the street, something's gone wrong. And I said, well, so is the damage large? What do we think? What do we know? I said, well, we don't know too much at the moment, but we'll give you a call back when we know a bit more. So this is about 1 a.m. in the morning. Stupidly, I went back to sleep. And I was the first person outside of Indonesia who, who got the call in Australia. My next phone call was about 4.30 in that morning from an extremely animated, I'll say, Ben McDevitt, letting me know that he'd heard that this attack had happened and that it was a terrorist attack and there were multiple casualties and that I'd received the phone call and I hadn't told him about it. Ben McDevitt was General Manager of National Operations for the AFP. I got a phone call to advise me that there had been an explosion in Bali and I was told that it was believed that it was some gas cylinders in a kitchen. That was what uh, I was first told. Obviously, about an hour or so later, started getting more phone calls, and pretty quickly it was obviously this was not about gas cylinders in a kitchen in Bali. I think the first explosion had been shortly after 11pm, and... The AFP was lucky and unlucky in a way that we had people on the ground. We were unlucky in that we had three officers actually injured in the blast, including one Nicole Haig, who was on leave, I think, from East Timor at the time. And she was in the Sari Club and actually suffered quite significant injuries. That was obviously very unfortunate, but we were lucky that we did have officers on the ground. Some had been there on leave from East Timor who'd been serving with the UN peacekeeping force there, and others had been deployed to Indonesia and actually involved in, um, in debriefing some people smugglers. So we were lucky in that we had people on the ground who could start to get information back, and that was, you know, that was the biggest issue for us in those early hours was actually trying to get information about exactly what had happened, who had perpetrated this, where had they gone, was, you know, was this the end of it, you know, were there going to be more attacks in the immediate future, what were the casualty count and so on. So just questions, endless sit of questions and the AFP I think was probably better placed than any agency 
certainly any Australian agency, to be able to start to get a sense of what had happened and when and where and the enormity of the situation which we were faced with. Within a matter of hours, then Prime Minister John Howard was told of the bombing. It's a phone call he'll never forget. I got a phone call from one of my senior staff who said briefly that there'd been this attack and that almost certainly there were a lot of casualties and it naturally shocked me. The rest of the day was totally consumed with assimilating the information. I talked uh, immediately to the Federal Police Commissioner because I thought he was somebody who'd be absolutely material. From the very beginning, I had an idea that this event was going to involve a lot of uh, deaths, a lot of injuries. It was very plain that the fact that a bomb had flattened a nightclub, that people would have been killed, and I knew that there would be a lot of Australians involved. As the AFP urgently began to assemble specialist forensic and investigative teams in Australia, back in Bali, amid all the chaos of what was happening on the ground, Frank Morgan had managed to stumble upon one of his missing AFP colleagues who'd suffered terrible burns and shrapnel wounds. There was a guy driving past in, uh, down the laneway in front of the hotel in a ute. So I basically commandeered his ute, put Tim in it and as many injured people as I could and just said, get me to a hospital, get me to somewhere, a medical centre. We pulled up at an international hospital I spoke to the doctor and he wouldn't let me in because they were just overrun. There was just too many people. I did a deal with him. I, I said, if you can take my mate in and these people, give me your medical kit. They had a big first aid, industrial size medical kit. I said, give that to me and I'll go out the front and do what I can out the front, but shut the door behind me so we don't get too many people in. He agreed to that, basically pushed me out the door Medical kit opened it up and then started dealing with people injured that were coming towards me. A lot of it you could patch them up, but the more serious ones, you had to make sure that they went to the right place at the right time. There was uh, a lot of burns, a lot of uh, eye injuries. There was a lot of minor cuts, bruises, concussions, and just working with people the best you could to get them the medical attention they needed. The, the problem is the medical centre that I was at was overrun. They were running out of bodies, they were running out of staff, they were running out of material. It, it, it was uh, desperate times for them. Frank courageously tried to help as many victims as possible, but he was also driven by one deeply personal mission. One of his colleagues, Nicole Haig, was still missing. Really in the back of my mind, my priorities were Tim, who was inside and not knowing where the others were because I hadn't had a chance to say to Tim, where's Nikki? When I was able, I was able to get back inside the medical centre and catch up with Tim. And he said to me, I don't know where Nikki is. She was there, but the bomb went off and, and it all went haywire. I ended up going to a whole lot of medical centres and hospitals and these strange little places and, and, and morgues where they were putting bodies basically going through to try and find Nick Haig. That just seemed to take forever, but I remember I've walked through a hospital or a, or a ward full of people 
I was walking along and I knew, I just knew someone was looking at me. Someone, someone was looking, and I stopped and turned around and I saw Nikki, but she didn't, she's, she's a lovely blonde hair girl. She looked nothing like it, nothing like it. But as soon as I saw her, I knew it was her and went over, over to her. So this was probably maybe 24 hours later that we, and I thought, oh, thank, thank God, I f- yeah, I found her. There's a win, there's a win. Nicole had suffered serious injuries that required urgent medical attention, but the hospital was overrun. There was no anaesthetic, no pain relief, just a fellow AFP agent by her side and a doctor with a razor blade. And he said, I'm going to have to perform a procedure. He, he told me what it was. I didn't understand. He said, but I have no anaesthetic. You're going to have to hold on to her. Yes, yeah, sure. Not a problem. Let's go. He took a razor blade and cut her from her the point of her shoulder to her elbow. And it was like opening up a sausage on a barbecue. He then went from her elbow to her wrist and then across the hand and along her fingers from memory just to relieve the fluid pressure off her where the burns had, had kicked in. I've never seen anything braver than that than Nikki Haig having that done to, to her. And all I could do was just look her in the eye and just say, just hang in there, you know, we'll get there. You'll get there, you'll get there, you'll get there. As dawn broke on the morning of Sunday, October 13, the extent of the destruction became clear. It remains a sobering image for Glenn McEwen. The enormity of it was there to see. You could see that concrete had been stripped off buildings, the crater, the actual, the damage. It was not gas bottles, which I was hoping it would be. It was far greater than that. You know, there was limbs hanging off buildings. There's, you know, cars over there on buildings. It was big. And even if it was a blast, it still needed to be cordoned off to actually dispel any other possibilities. So it was very clear to me that we had to secure those areas, particularly those two sites. And this is before I knew that Iqbal, the, the bomber, went into paddies and detonated and drew everybody out and then the, the van went up. You know, this is before that. This is still unknown territory, but we've got to do what we, we've got to do. In Australia, AFP and Australian government officials knew that they needed to formulate a swift response, a response which included evacuating the injured from Bali. It would become Australia's largest medical evacuation since the Vietnam War. Ian Kemish was working for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade as head of Australian consular operations. Within hours of the bombings, he was coordinating Australia's diplomatic response. Mounting a significant aeromedical evacuation was priority number one. A lot of coordination, a lot of calls to defence. You know, they were under their own command and were responding to that too. But one of the interesting things about these situations is that the ADF needs a, at some point, needs a formal request from Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to press the button and go. Prime Minister has a role in it too, obviously, but, but there, there is this protocol requirement because in the end, the ADF, when it's deployed for civilian purposes, needs to be answering the civil side of government. But look, you know, they were getting ready. They were, people were being scrambled from all over the place to put these aeromedical teams together. I needed to get people to 
barley fast. Defence agreed to put a few of my people on the plane and we made arrangements for people to be flown in from the embassy in Jakarta as well. For Andrew Colvin, the AFP's newly appointed national coordinator for counter-terrorism, it was a case of all hands on deck. We didn't know what we were going to need to do. We just knew that we needed to assemble as many people as quickly as we could. And the pressure on the senior executive was enormous. So, you know, my job, I think, was to try and bring the threads together and make some sense of what was chaos, make sure that Mick Kilty and Shane Castles and Ben McDevitt had the information they needed because government was obviously concerned and the early reports were so wildly inaccurate. A formal invitation from Indonesian Police Chief General Dai Baktir was the green light for the AFP to send an initial assessment team to Bali on the Sunday evening. This team would comprise seven investigators and two Disaster Victim Identification or DVI officers. If we're honest with ourselves, I don't think we knew what we needed. You know, I think Mick Kilty, well, not think, I know Mick Kilty uh, as commissioner made a really bold call right up front to get an assistant commissioner up from Melbourne and say, I want you on, on the ground in Bali. And I'm not sure what was briefed to Graham, but it wouldn't have been a great deal because not a lot was known. We didn't know a lot about DVI. Australian policing didn't know a lot about DVI. DVI wasn't something that we had practiced a great deal. The most recent experience had come out of Queensland and people remember the horrific Childers Backpacker fire, which was about 18 months, my memory is it was about 18 months, maybe 12 months before Bali. Graham was Graham Ashton, at the time the AFP's assistant commissioner in charge of the southern region. He'd received a call in the early hours of Sunday morning and told he was being deployed to Bali later that day. Selected for his previous experience working in the region and knowledge of the local language, Graham was instilled as the AFP's forward commander in Bali. He arrived 24 hours after the lights went out. The first thing I saw was at the airport before the crime scene, and that was, um, you know, all these white tents set up and, uh, and stretchers and beds, people being triaged to try to get them on a Hercules to Darwin and Perth. I was at the airport, struck by the fact there was no one there. So that was eerie to me, a bit uh, a bit sort of striking to me. And uh, when we went into Kuta itself, everything was shuttered down. So again, that was a jarring thing from the usual hustle and bustle that you'd normally see in Bali. But then arriving at the scene, remembering this was nearly 24 hours later, yeah, it was, it was still very chaotic at the scene itself. There was not really... A lot of uh, crime scene activity going on, if, if any much at all. Uh, it was still very much about trying to make sure that all the fires that were extinguished at the crime scene uh, were put out and that from a safety point of view, which is important in those sort of crime scenes to try and make sure the place is safe enough from a structural point of view for people to go in. What was also unusual was the amount of people that were free to wander through the crime scene. Like there really wasn't a perimeter set up as such. And, you know, people that were around, not that there were a lot, but at that time, people you could sort of just walk through. And uh, from a crime scene point of view, we needed to try and seek um, some organisation around that, which the Indonesians did pretty quickly after that and set up a a very strict perimeter around the the scene. But, um, yeah, I guess I was struck by... A, how, how eerily quiet everything was, and B, how big and messy the crime scene was and certainly indicated to me got a lot of work to do here to process this scene with the Indonesian police if they would uh, be good enough to allow us to do that. While Graham and his team assisted their Indonesian counterparts on the ground, AFP Commissioner Mick Kilty 
was working on establishing a joint investigation agreement between the two countries. The documents of cooperation really weren't signed until the next Thursday. And remembering this had occurred on a Saturday night. So, you know, there was about a sort of four or five day period where we didn't have anything signed. And that was troubling for us because we knew the Indonesians until something formal was signed that real cooperation couldn't really escalate. So what I was doing was trying to provide support in an understated way and without the agreements being signed and to try and do that whilst the AFP Commissioner McKelty was busy trying to negotiate the signing of that document with de Baktia, who was the Indonesian police chief at that time. So he was busy trying to broker that deal while I was trying to get things started on the ground, even though we didn't have an agreement yet. What happened in Kuta on the night of October 12, 2002, was history-defining for so many Australians. The days that followed were also history-defining for the AFP, as it was for many of its officers who received the call-up as part of the initial deployment to Bali. I got up on the Sunday morning to multitude of text messages and voice messages, all concerning some of our colleagues that were actually in the Sari Club and had been victims of the bombing. So there was a lot of emotion from, from the very first day because of that aspect of it. Mark Lang was working in protective security intelligence at the AFP in Canberra when he found out that he was being deployed to Bali. The calls and the messages were basically to get in contact with my supervisors because I'd been nominated by my commander to deploy as a, in a first response capability. I think the only caveat I had, the AFP was very, very junior in its counterterrorism capability at the time. And while there was two people that I knew, I recently promoted superintendent by the name of Andrew Colvin, who went on to become our commissioner. And I believe he was a sergeant at the time, Andy Thorpe. I think that was my first question to my boss was, um, is Andy Thorpe going, you know, deploying? Because I'd worked with Andy in detectives and, and that back in ACT police. So I thought, well, there's, there's at least someone that I know is a good hand that, you know, be working side by side with. I think Mark Lang was identified to go and he basically said to the bosses that if, if we're going offshore, we need to take me, which I found a bit odd, but he did. He said, why don't you ask Thorpe, we, you know, we need to get him aboard. And of course, if you're going to go, particularly working in that area, you know, and people say, oh, didn't you think it was dangerous or whatever? The reality is the bombs have gone off and you've got to do what you can to help those that are there and find out who's responsible because it was atrocious, really, what happened. We had no real remit what we were to do. It was just get up there and get to work, and I think it was all just get boots on the ground. And, um, yeah, so that was so that sort of developed that day, and we were pretty well on a, on a military aircraft pretty quick, a small, small deployment of us. And pretty certain Graham Ashton was on that plane, who was the, to be the commander up on the ground in Bali. Obviously, Andy Thorpe, myself, and... Mick Travers and a couple of other colleagues. In Kuta, survivors moved from hospital to hospital, clinic to clinic, looking for their loved ones and adding names to the growing list of the missing. During the early days of their investigation, Mark Lang and Andy Thorpe encountered a football coach from Perth at one of the mortuaries. He was trying to locate some of the missing from his club. The club was the Kingsley Cats, and the coach was Simon Quayle. We ran into Simon and some of the others at the mortuary. They had boards up with missing people on it, you know, ring so-and-so. It was obvious they were Australian and that they were injured. So 
I said, you know, we're from the federal police. Who are you? You know, were you in the in the Surrey Club or Paddy's when the bombs went off? And they said, yeah, we're in the Surrey Club. And I said, look, we need to talk to people that were there to start documenting what it is they saw and what happened because that's the start to any criminal investigation. You document the witnesses that were on the scene. I spoke to someone probably about four hours in his room, you know, dripping on the field book, thinking this is difficult, but, you know, you've got to persevere. And I told the crew, hang around because when we finish, because everybody had left by the Monday night pretty much, they were feeling a bit vulnerable and left behind. Their position had been, um, we're not going home without our mates. That was their thought process behind that. I said, we're going to have to sit down and actually spend some time with them. Just no statements, just have a drink with them. So we did from about midnight till like four o'clock in the morning and they sat around this table and 10 of the 11 that were there had been in the Sari Club. Andy was joined by Mark Lang at the Bounty Hotel where they spent hours with the surviving members of the Kingsley Cats, most bearing visible scars from the events of Saturday night. The majority of them were sitting in the pool, all with some form of injury, shrapnel, fragments, in burns, um, you know, all injuries from, from a bomb blast. But the way that they were dealing with that was to use the comfort of the pool, the cooler water, and maybe a couple of um, drinks to help with some of the pain. So we spent the night taking statements from these group of young men, this football club, and um, yeah, I've, I always I remember all through it. It was like you know, have a beer with us, have a beer with us, and we said, no, 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 we're working, we're working, and and when we when we finished, we said, oh, we'll have a beer now. And what most most powerful memory of that night is this young man. I took his statement. He's eighteen years old. This was the first time he'd ever left Perth, as I recall. Ever left? He still lived with his parents. He's eighteen. He played footy with his club, was a handy footballer, I'm led to believe. We got through the statement. He was, he was emotional, totally understandable. If you can just picture an 18-year-old young man, first time ever left home to go on holiday, first day, and he's out at the Surrey Club, time of his life. He was seated in a club, him and one of his teammates, and they were talking to two, two girls, um, backpackers from another country. The bomb exploded and... By the time that he was able to regain his feet, collect his wits and look around in what I can only imagine would be incomprehensible, you know, to him, his teammate and both the girls are on the ground dead. We got to the statement stage and I remember towards the end of it, he said, um, they're going to come back and get me, aren't they? And I said, who's going to come back and get you? And he said, oh, terrorists. And I said, no, mate, they're not going to come back and get you. He was scared. The conversation went on. I said, well, I'm staying at a hotel down the road and it's full of police and there's plenty of rooms and there's multiple beds in every room. I said, you can come down and stay with us and if that makes you feel safe. And I, re- I remember um, he had to think about it. The wash-up was he says, no, nah, I'll stay with my mates. It was a deeply moving experience for Mark and Andy to hear such traumatic stories from these young men. The Kingsley Cats Football Club lost seven members in the Sari Club bombing. Other sports clubs lost members and loved ones in the tragedy as well, including six young men from Sydney Rugby League Club 
the Coogee Dolphins. Providing accurate information to families of loved ones who'd been caught up in the bombings became a major priority for the AFP. It would very quickly lead to an AFP first. The establishment of family liaison officers. We'll examine their role in a later episode of this podcast. In the early days of the Bali bombings investigation, Australian families and Australian media were desperate for information. Brett Swan was working on the Gold Coast as part of the AFP's crime operations investigation team when he got the call to deploy to Bali. Initially part of the investigation team, Brett was soon given a very different role. I was asked to accompany the Commissioner and Graham Ashton to a high-level meeting based in Indonesia. I remember Graham and the Commissioner coming out and we got into the car. I was sitting at the front and, uh, and, and Graham and the Commissioner in the back seat the Commissioner was quite adamant that the AFP needs to be in the front foot in terms of media. We had 88 Australian victims, so there was a lot of pressure on the Commissioner, I think, at the time that he had to really show that we were there and we were doing our best to try and come up with, with a result in finding out who the perpetrators were of, of the bombing. So, yes, I was in the car at the time where um, both Graham and the Commissioner were talking about media and uh, I heard my name being mentioned as being somebody that could be the media head or the spokesman for the for Graham as the chief investigating officer at media conferences on a daily basis. I must admit, I did turn around and look and said, are you kidding? But that was my new role for, for the next two weeks. It was a short-term strategy in the sense of just getting out there, being with the INP in front of uh, the media, or well, world media. There was a lot of media there. There was a lot of, lot of media. Brett Swan became the face of the daily media briefings from Bali alongside his Indonesian counterpart. It was a challenging role, dealing with an increasingly frenzied media pack eager for a story. You did start identifying certain journalists who were just out there to get the big story. And then you had, you had your uh, journalists who were very measured in, in the way they did ask their questions. And, and I put it down to the fact that they were being respectful in what they were trying to find out, given you know that it was a large number of people who actually died. Some of the journalists were really asking really nasty questions and it was all about DVI results. And I do remember one lady journalist uh, coming up to me and say, how would I feel if it was my son or daughter or father or mother who were victims and, and their families couldn't, and I couldn't go and recover the bodies and take them home. There was a resentment towards some of these journalists because they were way over the top, should never have been there. And every Australian police officer, DVI, Anyone representing Australia over there trying to help out, we're putting 200% in. And what, some of the things they were saying was, well, what's the AFP doing? You know, what, what are you guys doing? Well, you know, these guys were 24-7. You know, the DVI guys and the forensic guys dealing with, uh, you know, dead bodies on a daily basis. That's commitment, which I, I don't think uh, a lot of people really understood at the time, just, just how extensive and emotional doing that job was. Keeping up with media demands for information was like feeding a ravenous beast. In Canberra, Anne Lyons was the AFP's Director of Marketing and Communications. There was a lot of misinformation happening. 
being spread by whoever for whatever reasons as to what what had happened in Bali at the time, that trying to get the right information out was difficult. So I, I think they were aggressive, but it's understandable as to why they were. We had a whole new genre of reporters came out of, you know, September 11 and then the Bali bombing for Australia with, you know, terrorist writers. You know, we never really had those or terrorism When I talk about misinformation, they were hearing from people not necessarily involved in the investigation or from other countries and other sources as well. Like anything now, I mean, we see it a lot with social media now, a lot of misinformation that gets out there because of someone's agenda or mischief making or whatever the reason is that they're putting out that information. We had to try and establish ourselves as a source of truth particularly for the Australian media. And that's where we really moved our strategy to, was to make that happen. But in those very early days, it was just um, minute by minute, hour by hour. And the media would go to some of the the scenes themselves. They'd get there before the police sometimes. And look, Media 101, you know, when there's a vacuum, when you can't get the information, someone will step in to give the information, whether it's right, wrong or indifferent. Or you'll extrapolate it yourself if there's no information. So getting someone there, getting timely things was important. So having a media spokesperson for us was important to get that, but also the difficulties of ensuring we weren't usurping or stepping too far over in relation to our counterparts in the INP was was a really difficult thing. I think we did a really good job, but it was fraught. Former Prime Minister John Howard is quick to agree. I was immensely impressed with the way in which our uh, security authorities cooperated. The investigation involved the uh, effective embedding of Australian police and intelligence people inside the Indonesian operation. Obviously, it had to be overseen by the Indonesians because uh, the outrage had occurred on Indonesian territory and we had to respect the Indonesians' prime role. But they were happy to have our people there. They were happy to have senior officers of the Australian Federal Police like Graham Ashton and others who worked very, very hard. And within a fairly short period of time, it got results. I think that is an enormous tribute to the willingness of the two police forces to work together. I can't speak too highly because they immediately adapted to the circumstances, the AFP. They knew that they had to work in close professional harmony with the Indonesians. They knew that. And they knew that they had to allow the Indonesians to control the operation, but to be there with their expertise to help. The bombings in Kuta Beach on October 12, 2002, left 202 people dead, including 88 Australians. A further 209 people were injured. In the weeks following the bombings, Operation Alliance, led by the AFP, saw more than 500 Australian personnel deployed to Bali and another 400 staff back in Australia supporting the operation to try and establish what had happened and to find those responsible. Coming up in Episode 2, we hear from those who worked around the clock helping to identify the victims, those who helped the families and also the forensic investigators who'd be called upon to rely on their experience, their years of training and their gut instinct to find answers in the chaos that lay before them. Attending the scenes for the first time was very confronting. Most of the victims had been removed from the scene but 
but not all things. And just the extent of the devastation was so significant, just given the infrastructure over there. And it was just overwhelming. What do we do with this? And I could see red, white and blue cotton fibres embedded in the molten insulation around the, uh, the monocore wire. Now, following the theory that this could, could be part of the bomb, then that red, white and blue cotton was a significant observation at that time. I think that's an important part of forensic science is recognising these little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and where they fit into the overall picture. But it really is attention to detail. The opinions, beliefs and viewpoints expressed by the individuals featured in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs and viewpoints of the AFP. If the content in this podcast has caused you any distress, please contact Lifeline for support on 13 11 14. Operation Alliance, the 2002 Bali bombings, is a production of the AFP, written and researched by Nicole Gunn and Dave Carter. Audio production by Pro Podcast Production. Produced by Dave Carter on behalf of Mediaheads. If you found this podcast informative, please take the time to share it, write a review and subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. To learn more about the work of the AFP, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn or visit the website afp.gov.au forward slash careers.